Hi, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. And uh, if we haven't met, my name's Jordan, uh, one of the other highly esteemed student ministers that Bryn alluded to earlier. Uh, Now, if I were to uh, go around the room and ask you all this morning if safety and stability were important to you, I think it's pretty safe to guess that virtually everyone would say yes. But have you ever thought what it would be like to have those things completely taken away? Have you ever watched the news or a movie uh, about war-torn countries with corrupt leaders? And imagine what it would be like to live in a place where chaos is quickly becoming the standard for everyday life. Uh, Well, even if you have, I doubt you've ever connected those thoughts with the idea of living in God's country under the rule of his kings. And yet, in some ways, that's exactly what we're going to see this morning. Because we're going to go on a journey through chapters 8 to 10 of 2 Kings, which is, I'll give you fair warning, a bit of a wild ride. And going forward, we aren't going to stop necessarily and make a point after every individual event in the narrative. And as we move, I certainly don't want you to worry about trying to remember every single person's name and every detail about them. But I do want you to consider and take in and let it wash over you just how much of a mess Israel's monarchy truly is. Uh, I want you to remember that we're reading about the leaders of God's people. And so get ready to take everything you'd expect of leaders in those trusted positions and throw them out the window. Uh, Now, actually, as we begin in chapter 8, as we've just read, uh, we do have our one pleasant event in this series of narratives, uh, because we start by finding Elisha continuing to care for the woman who had shown him hospitality and who God had blessed with a son. Uh, Back at that time, her husband was old, uh, and now it seems like she was a widow. It's not the easiest situation to find yourself in at the best of times, Uh, a single mother with a child to provide for, Uh, but perhaps especially not when a seven-year famine has just entered the land, as verse 1 tells us. And in fact, it turns out this famine is going to be so severe that Elisha tells her it is better to get out of God's promised land and live as a resident alien, a stranger in a foreign country. And he does that because this particular disaster has been brought about by God's judgment because his people have been so unfaithful. So anyway, in the space of two verses, the widow leaves, waits out the seven years of famine and comes back home unscathed. (laughs) So far, so good. But see actually how God continues to look out for her in verses 4 to 6. See how the king is conveniently hearing all about Elisha's exploits involving this widow just as she comes in to ask for her property back. So, as she does, she tells him the story of how Elisha helped her, and the king gladly returns everything she owned. She even gets back the earnings that her field made in the time she was gone. 
Uh, and as, I don't know about you, but as I read through this passage, I couldn't help but think that it's funny how often kings and rulers ended up on the wrong side of God's prophets. <laughs> and yet Elisha, just like Elijah before him, willingly helped the faithful, even widows who were of no worldly significance whatsoever. And they do this because Elisha's God once said to the prophet Samuel, man does not see what the Lord sees, for man sees what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And that is to say that the God of kings is the same God of the widows and orphans. He is the God who judges by the content of our hearts, which is why, unfortunately, our narrative is about to take a very different turn. In verse 7, we find that Elisha has some unfinished business in the city of Damascus. Uh, You see, the king of Aram was ill, and God had commissioned Elisha to anoint another man as king, a man called Hazael. Uh, Now, as it happened, Hazael was not a good man. Uh, The sick king had sent him to inquire whether he would recover or not. Uh, And so, you might remember, Elisha gives Hazael this cryptic little response in verse 10. He says, Go and say to him, the king, you are sure to recover, but the Lord has shown me he is sure to die. And I don't worry, God's prophet was not lying when he said the king would recover. It's just that he was talking specifically about his illness, which is what the king wanted to know. But the thing is, Elisha also knew what would happen next. Because as Hazael returns to his king, oh, he tells him he will recover before suffocating him with a damp cloth the very next morning. Surely he would recover from his sickness, yet surely he would die. For now, though, we're going to come back out of the land of Aram, back to Israel and Judah. And uh, just to make things really simple for you, our next two kings have exactly the same name, Joram. Uh, Now, you might notice that sometimes Judah's king is called Jehoram, with an H in the middle. Uh, But what you really need to know is that both these Joram-Jehorams were bad. But verse 19 tells us, and this is going to come in very important later, verse 19 tells us that despite... Joram's wickedness. God had promised to David to keep one of his descendants on the throne forever. And so he wouldn't destroy the wicked kingdom of Judah, but he would bring judgment upon it. And the first sign of that judgment is that the promised land is beginning to shrink. As the lands of Edom and Libna successfully rebel against the king, And so Judah loses control of them. So, so far, we've got Hazael committing regicide. (laughs) We've got two bad kings over Israel and Judah. And we have God's promised land getting smaller. So far, so not so good. But 
In verse 25, we find that King Jehoram has now died, and Judah's new king, named Ahaziah, is going to go with Israel's king to fight against Hazael, who is now himself king, having killed the previous one. Well, long story short, uh, their attack fails, Israel's king gets injured, and he has to return home to lick his wounds. And things definitely won't get better for Israel's king, Joram, because chapter 9 opens with the anointing of a man named Jehu to be Israel's new king, without Joram's knowledge. And in verse 7, uh, we read that Jehu's job as the new king is to strike down the house of Ahab because Jezebel had previously killed so many of God's prophets. Now, Ahab's house is going to be wiped out in exactly the same way. And have a look at verse 10 especially, where we see that Jezebel will be eaten by the dogs and go without burial. She will end up thoroughly disgraced. Before we get to that, though, Jehu's first task is located at a place called Jezreel, uh, where his task is to kill the injured King Joram and King Ahaziah, which we just read about. And in verse 17, and I love this little part of the narrative, in verse 17 we read that the watchman of the city sees Jehu and his mob coming, and starts to send out messengers to find out who it is. One by one, the messengers come up to Jehu and ask, is is it peace? And Jehu, without breaking his stride, is like, no, 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 no. What do you have to do with peace? Get in behind me. And as the watchman, he sees this happen, first, second, and then the third time, in verse 20, he starts to say, guys, I... I think it might be Jehu coming. And I can tell because he drives like an absolute madman. By the way, are there any driving instructors here in this congregation? Because I was thinking, why not try that one on your first lesson sometime? You know, son, your driving is like that of Jehu, son of Nimshi. Could be a great evangelistic opportunity. (laughs) But anyway, as the kings of Israel and Judah come out to meet Jehu, they stop at a very significant place. They stop on the land of Naboth, whom Jezebel killed and whom God swore to avenge. And now Israel's king, when he meets Jehu, tries to ask for peace. But look at Jehu's reply in verse 22. What peace can there be? as long as there is so much prostitution and sorcery from your mother Jezebel. And so as King Joram tries to run, knowing that he's in serious trouble, Jehu draws his bow, and the term used there is one that means he drew it as fully as he could. Literally, he filled his hand with his bow, and he nails Joram right in the heart, straight through his armor, It was quite literally the perfect shot. And so just like that, in an instant, God fulfilled his promise to avenge Naboth, whom Jezebel had murdered on his own plot of land. Ahaziah, the king of Judah, doesn't fare much better. Uh, They chase him down and shoot him as well. And he was only 22, and he had reigned for just one 
year. Uh, however, as wild as things have been so far, we're actually only beginning the main event, and that is the killing of Jezebel, one of the most evil, idolatrous individuals in the Bible. Uh, and I think it's significant, actually, uh, that despite all of Jezebel's dishonorable accolades, she doesn't really last long in the narrative. Uh, it seems no one really does when Jehu's involved. He's nothing if not efficient. But in verse 32, as he arrives to find Jezebel waiting for him, he looks up towards her servants and asks that anyone who's on his side throw her out the window which a few of them happily do. And after she falls, far enough that her blood splattered on the wall and over the horses, Jehu rides over her and crushes her under his horse. It was a quick, unceremonious, and brutal end for her. But we're not actually done yet, because look at verse 36. It says, but when they went out to bury her, they did not find anything but the skull, the feet, and the hands. So they went back and told Jehu and said, and he said, this fulfills the Lord's word, which he spoke through his servant, Elijah the Tishbite. In the plot of land of Jezreel, the dogs will eat Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's corpse will be like manure on the surface of the ground in the plot of land at Jezreel, so that no one will be able to say, this is Jezebel. So, uh, now that both Jezebel and King Ahab and several others connected to them lie dead, Jehu turns his attention to Ahab's family line in chapter 10. And you'll be glad to know this is the last chapter. And so he sends a letter to the guardians of Ahab's sons, telling them to essentially set him up for a bit of a duel. Uh, He says, appoint one of his sons as king so that he can come out and fight Jehu. But knowing that Jehu had already defeated two kings, Ahaziah and Joram, well, what chance did these people have? So after the guardians reply, saying, we will do whatever you tell us, Jehu writes back, telling them to bring him the heads of Ahab's sons by this time tomorrow. And as soon as the request came to them, verse 7, they slaughtered all 70 of Ahab's sons and sent Jehu their heads in baskets. And so with their deaths, yet another of Elisha's prophecies was being fulfilled, where it said, This is what the Lord says. I am about to bring disaster on you and will eradicate your descendants. I will wipe out all of Ahab's males, both slave and free, in Israel. Next, we turn to Ahaziah's relatives in verse 13. Uh, And at this point, it will probably surprise no one to hear that they're all dead by the end of verse 14. And then in verse 17, Jehu makes it to Samaria, uh, where these guys don't even survive a whole verse. And they too are destroyed according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. But finally, 
And well done for sticking with me this far. Finally, Jehu turns to the Baal worshippers, the very finest purveyors of idolatry in all of Israel. And you'll notice that Jehu's description in verse 18 says uh, he brings the people together and says, sorry, Jehu's deception in verse 18, uh, where he says, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him a lot. Uh, He even says that he has a great sacrifice planned for Baal. Uh, And I just imagine that at this point he was really enjoying the irony, thinking he was so clever. Uh, But to be fair to him, his deception worked. Uh, Baal's priests and servants from all over Israel came together until, it says, his temple was crammed full from one end to the other. Then... Once they've arrived, Jehu makes them dress up in their priestly clothes to offer sacrifices. And this was all totally unnecessary, by the way, uh, but Jehu is a man who loves his work. So, brought into the temple, dressed in their finest priestly garments, Jehu and his men move in and slaughter everyone. I actually cannot imagine the chaos and the mess that that scene would have been. Eighty men piling into a temple, swords drawn. Uh, And you'll remember I asked you at the start if you valued safety and security. Could you imagine hearing about these sorts of things happening just a couple of suburbs over from where you live? Anyway, after everyone was dead... They tore out the sacred pillar where the priests would worship, and they burnt it. Then in verse 27, they tore down the whole temple and turned it into a toilet, which at the author's time of writing two kings was indeed still a toilet. It's not the best ending for Baal and those who worship him, is it? The Lord had been patient for a very, very long time. But when he acted... It was decisive. It was exactly according to his prophecies. And those who fell under his judgment were ultimately slaughtered, and their memory was disgraced. And uh, as we begin to finish this section of the narrative, uh, I think it's interesting to consider Jehu's evaluation, starting in verse 28. Because the writer is clear that throughout this time, Jehu was not a good man. Uh, He had his own issues with idol worship. He certainly was not careful to follow all of God's ways. And yet, have a look at verse 30. It says, Nevertheless, the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my sight, and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, Four generations of your sons will sit on the throne of Israel. God was, generally speaking, pleased with what he was accomplished. And so he was rewarded with several generations of sons who would occupy the throne. But how does that sit with you? Is your view of God big enough to accommodate such things? Are you willing to see sin 
especially idolatry, the sin of putting false gods before the one true God, a sin which every one of us is familiar with. Do you truly see idolatry as worthy of such severe punishment? Are you willing to remember that although God is a merciful judge, he is a patient judge, that in the end he will leave no sin unpunished, and he will give those who reject him exactly what they deserve? Because what we've just witnessed this morning is that like an exterminator might deal with vermin, so God was wiping out the idol-infested houses of Israel. And uh, I'm not going to finish by asking you the question we've been asking all throughout two kings. You know, could this next king be the coming Messiah? (laughs) Because for now, I think we all know the answer to that question. But in light of such a rough section of Scripture, such a valuable section, praise be to God that he was faithful to his promise to David, which we saw in chapter 8. That no matter how unfaithful his people were, that he would continue to put one of David's descendants on the throne forever. And praise be to Jesus, who is that king. Jesus, who told us that his kingdom is not of this broken world, and it can't be corrupted by false worship and evil leaders no matter how bad things seem, even to king's levels of bad. And so with that, here's two quick practical things to take away, which don't really need much explaining after what we've seen. First of all, remember the instruction the Apostle Paul gives us in 1 Timothy to pray for our leaders so that we can live peaceful lives in godliness and dignity. Government is a force that God uses for good, even when its leaders are bad. And so, as God's people, it does us no favors when we fail to pray for them and then complain about the decisions they make. So, pray for those in authority over us, so that we might never know such disastrous leadership as Israel did. But finally... In contrast to all of the ungodly ways in which Israel's kings tried to get what they wanted, remember the widow at the beginning of chapter 8 and how God provided for her in her faithfulness. She didn't have any authority, certainly no worldly significance whatsoever. And yet, unlike these kings, the most powerful people of the ancient world, She was sustained and cared for even through times of trouble because God loves his faithful people who trust and obey him. So for those of us then who know King Jesus, if we know that he willingly died to save us, how much more then will he provide for us while we wait for him to return with a kingdom that will never be corrupted? and will never come to an end. And so in this hope, let me close by blessing us with a few words from Psalm 84. Listen to this. The Lord of hosts, better a day in your courts 
than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be at the door of the house of my God than to live in the tents of wicked people. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. He does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. Happy is the person who trusts in you, O Lord of hosts. Amen.